Well, this morning we're continuing our series through the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Um, as you can see, we'll be covering chapter 25 of marriage. Um, definitely not a controversial topic for today. Uh, but before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we, we thank you for this Lord's Day, for gathering us, your people, together to hear your word proclaimed, to gather with fellow saints to worship you, Father, Son, and Spirit. And Lord, in this Sunday school hour, we ask that you would be with us. Use this hour to prepare us for worship. Help us to see your design for marriage, the meaning of marriage, and Lord, how marriage ultimately points um, to the marriage of Christ to us, his church, his bride. Father, uh, we pray that you would be with us this hour. Give us wisdom, give us insight. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, to begin, we'll kind of recap previous chapters, um, specifically chapters that are going to connect to the topic of marriage as um, defining the, the confession. So first, if you recall, chapter one, the Holy Scriptures, that, uh, that chapter is important today because we uh, learn about the light of nature and general revelation. Um, creation and providence, they reveal the works of God, the law is written on all of our hearts. Um, We're going to see how that kind of plays into how we understand marriage as well. It also ties into the section of chapters that we're in. So chapters 21 through 30 cover the doctrine of Christian liberty. Obviously there's a specific chapter on that, but following that chapter, they all kind of build on what Christian liberty is. Uh, Chris, he taught on chapters 23 and 24. So um, 23 was lawful oaths and vows. Of course, marriage uh, would be included uh, there and and an oath, and chapter 24, the civil magistrate, that really ties into today, especially with marriage, because we're going to consider whether or not marriage is a religious matter or a secular matter, and I think everything Chris taught on is, is very key there. So God calls different institutions, different kingdoms, he calls the church, and he calls the authorities that he's ordained on earth to different callings, different tasks. We'll see how that plays in. Of course, the church is to fence the the first table of the law, that is how we worship God, the first four commandments. Uh, it's the heavenly kingdom and the earthly kingdom. The state is to fence the second table of the law to protect, um, to protect human society through the, the fifth through tenth commandments. And then the next chapter, of course, as I mentioned in the, the prayer, the next chapter is of the church. So um, it's not explicit in this chapter, but the next chapter will build on this chapter on, on how marriage, we understand marriage through, through creation, through God's ordinance of it, and the next chapter we're going to see how marriage ultimately points to the church and our marriage to Christ. Just to give you an outline for today as well, um, I think some of my, it's backwards there, uh, so I want to discuss some supposed omissions from the chapter that some pointed out, um, as well as the historical context of its writing. And then an outline for this morning's paragraph one, um, we'll discuss the meaning of marriage. What about divorce as well? That's one of the supposed omissions is that the, this chapter doesn't talk about divorce, unlike the Westminster Confession. Uh, we're going to discuss the ends of marriage in paragraph two. So what are the purposes, the, the end goals of marriage? We'll discuss those. We'll also discuss the lawfulness of marriage. What marriage constitutes a lawful marriage according to God's design? And finally, the uh, 
prohibitions regarding marriage. So what kind of marriages are completely forbidden? Um, we'll discuss that in paragraph four. So first, uh, two supposed omissions in the chapter. I mentioned it already. But the Westminster Confession, their chapter here on of marriage, it's of marriage and divorce. Now, the independents who wrote the Savoy Declaration and the Baptists who wrote our London Confession here, um, they omitted that from the title, and they even omitted the three paragraphs covering the topic of divorce. Many people might see that as an issue, as an error. Why would you take that out? Because the Baptist really believes quite the same thing about divorce, the grounds for divorce, as those who wrote the Westminster Confession. Um, but it was omitted, and, and why is that? Is this a rejection of divorce entirely? Do they believe once you're married, you, you can't, uh, there's no lawful way out of, out of a a harmful marriage, or is it more nuanced than that? I'm going to argue it's more nuanced, as we'll see um, for the first paragraph. Another omission, um, supposed omission, is that there's no explicit definition of marriage. From paragraph one, there's kind of an assumed understanding of what the word marriage means. Um, there's a few reasons for this, though, uh, th- and this is the claim of many Reformed Baptists, including um, Sam Waldron, he's very well-known, and very, uh, a very good scholar as well in the Confession. Uh, but he and others claim this, and that's because it's really an issue of, of how we understand natural law and general revelation. Um, someone like Sam Waldron is going to, um, he's going to see the Confession omit a definition of marriage and say that it needs to use Scripture um, to give a clear definition of what marriage is. And I actually think the, the writers of the Westminster, the London Confession, they would argue that marriage, as a natural law institution, we all can know what that is by nature. Um, and it really wasn't an issue until the, the 20th century, uh, questioning what marriage meant anyway. So we can understand, at a very general re- level, why they didn't feel the need to define what that word meant. So now some historical context. Does anyone know who that, that man is there in his, his beautiful clothing there? Yeah, Ethan. Yes, absolutely correct. That's King Henry VIII. Do you know what, why he was important? Well, kind of revealed it there. No pressure, no pressure. Anybody? Anybody know why he was important during the, prior to the Reformation or during? Yeah, Matt. Yes, that, that's exactly right. And, and yeah, he led to the, the formation of the Anglican Church, essentially, as a separate institution. Um, so yeah, as he said, King Henry, he sought annulment of Catherine. Now, annulment's a little bit different than divorce. It was essentially um, a proclamation that you were never married in the first place. This was an unlawful marriage to begin with. Um, but essentially, he wanted a divorce, and he was denied by the Roman Catholic Church, Again, this led to the separation of the Church of England from the Roman Catholic Church, and then eventually to the English Reformation as well, which led to the Westminster and the London Confessions. But among various issues, during the 16th and 17th century, uh, marriage was, was a very contentious topic, and uh, that's especially tied to divorce. And the, the divorce that was sought by King Henry VIII, that raised a lot of questions on, on the nature of marriage and divorce. And it led to a, a really serious question, is marriage a matter of the church or the state? Now, in the time, the Roman Catholic Church, and even the Anglicans to an extent, they held that, that marriage is a sacrament. 
Um, what did the, the English reformers think about this? Well, in, on July 4th, so somewhat of an Independence Day there as well, the Bare Bones Parliament was passed. And I say it's another Independence Day um, because on July 4th, 1653, the independence um, through Parliament actually gained a lot of favor when Oliver Cromwell, um, I won't give you a history lesson, but Oliver, Oliver Cromwell um, became Lord Protectorate over England uh, for a very short period of time, as you can see. Um, and one of the, the leading parliament members, uh, Praise God Barebones, which let's give a second and, and uh, thank the Puritans for their, their awesome names, Praise God Barebones. Um, but he was one of the leading men in parliament, so it kind of got the nickname Barebones Parliament. Um, this was a very important, very short parliament during the English Reformation uh, when parliament um, had an upper hand over uh, the king after King Charles' death. There are major reforms in this parliament. Uh, they were in favor of religious liberty and church-state separation. So this was in favor of the independents and therefore of the Baptists as well, who were a much smaller group at the time. Before the Barebones Parliament, a citizenship was um, demarcated by one's baptism in the Church of England. Um, and marriage, of course, remained a sacramental matter. It was seen as a means of grace. But after the Bare Bones Parliament, or during the Bare Bones Parliament, for a very short period at least, um, your citizenship was recognized by your birth in England, uh, your lawful birth in England, and your marriage was seen as a civil and legal matter um, rather than, than being put off to ministers of the Church of England. Um, and this was to the liking, to the favor of the Baptist and independence of the time. And if you recall the last few weeks when we were in uh, chapter 24, going through um, the civil magistrate, we can see how that's very important. But I won't rehash everything we, we learned in the last few weeks. But are there any questions up to this point before we dig into to what the confession says? All right, no questions about, uh, about uh, the Anglican Church's formation or, or King Henry's um, questionable uh, beliefs. But uh, paragraph one, um, we'll, we'll read that. Paragraph one. Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife, nor for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. There are a few, there are a few important um, key words to note here. Uh, first, we have two prohibitions here. Two prohibitions that both regard polygamy, the love of, of more than one. First is, is the prohibition of polygyny. So that's um, a man is not allowed to have many wives. And then on, on the other hand, polyandry. A woman is not allowed to have many husbands. Um, they thought it was important to, to distinguish both to say it's not just simple for men to have multiple wives, but for uh, women to have multiple husbands. Um, polygyny was very common in history, but during the, the 17th century, there were various infidel groups in England that actually practiced um, polyandry. And I think it was in Scotland, there were many Celtic groups that um, kind of matriarchal um, tribes would have, there'd be um, a woman with, with several husbands, sometimes over a dozen. Um, so they thought it was important at the time. But notice it says in, the, in that, the end of the paragraph, for you not to have more than one, one wife and more than one husband at the same time. Does anyone know what they mean there, why, uh, why they distinguish that? 
Any, any takers? Yeah, Richard. Okay, yeah, that, that's, that's might, might be part of it, yep. Yeah, Matthew? Yes, that's it. So it's an allowance for, for really, for remarriage. Um, in other words, you can have more than one wife in your life or more than one husband in your life but not at the same time, because it is a it is a binding covenant that ends at marriage. It ends at the death, or sorry, ends at death. Marriage ends at, at death. The death of at least one spouse, of course. So this is an implicit um, allowance of remarriage after death, and this is also important given the context, because um, it was often um, remarriage was frowned upon prior to the English Reformation, by, by and large, at least. And um, divorce as well, as we're, we're going to discuss in just a moment. Um, divorce was simply, unless you were a very rich or wealthy person, you are rarely ever given a divorce or annulment by um, the Church of England or the Roman Catholic Church. Um, in fact, there would be things called wife sales, where if a wife wanted to separate from her husband, whether if he wasn't present, if it was a case of desertion, or he was adulterous, um, she could be sold for farm animals for uh, goods, but it was not actual divorce. She was still bound in covenant to him, um, and you can see how that leads to many, that in itself is a very unhealthy practice for society. You can see the, the detriment that, that would have um, on those women, and, and the men as well. But we also have the language of, of lawfulness, so it, it speaks of what is lawful regarding marriage. And their proof text here is Genesis 2.24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now the point of, of quoting Genesis 2.24 there, of why they reference that, is they're trying to show that marriage is a creation ordinance. It's for all mankind. And um, going back to, to the last few weeks, they're speaking in terms of natural law, which is perceived by means of general revelation. It's what we all know. The law is written on our hearts. Um, and, and again, I'm not going to rehash everything we spoke about, but uh, the church and the state are called to different tasks. And this is, this is um, key to that. And this explains the, the lack of an explicit definition of marriage, as, as I mentioned. So in the previous chapter, God has ordained the civil magistrate to enforce the second table of the law, the sixth through tenth commandments. And the church is to protect first table matters, so how we worship God as expressed in the first through fourth. Marriage, of course, is a matter of the seventh commandment um, regarding adultery. And therefore, the Puritans believed, and, and the, um, the English reformers believed, therefore marriage is to be protected and upheld by the civil magistrate as a legal and secular matter. Now, secular in terms of not denying that there's God, but um, not a task of the church itself. And I think even, a, even among us, this is a challenging um, thing for us to accept because we see the, the, the religious aspects of marriage, rightly so. There is a, a religious sense of a Christian marriage. Um, but even today, I think this is a bit controversial in Christian circles that the marriage is actually a, a legal matter. It's a secular matter for, for the state. Because it's not a sacrament. It's not a means of grace. That God was ordained uh, to build up the church. It's for all mankind. All people are allowed and permitted to marry. 
And this, again, this does not negate the Christian responsibilities of marriage, as we'll see in the last two paragraphs. Christians are called to a higher calling regarding marriage. The independents and the Baptists argued that marriage ultimately should not be a burden for ministers um, as it pertains to the civil affairs. But there's Christian liberty, so when it comes to officiation, um, the, the writers of the Confessions, the Westminster, the ba- the, or not, sorry, not the Westminster, they had a slightly different view. Um, the Savoy Declaration of the Independence, the Baptists here, the, the London Confession, they believed um, it was down to Christian liberty whether or not um, a pastor, a minister, could officiate. They left that down to the, minute, the, uh, the liberty of the believers getting married, as well as of the minister themselves. But they believed it wasn't, it wasn't a burden that the minister ought to necessarily have. Um, it's not, because it's not a calling of the church, ultimately. Uh, they would also have, have a Christian liberty regarding location. So in all the changes in Parliament, laws were constantly being changed regarding marriage, whether it was a sacrament, whether it wasn't, whether it was a legal or religious matter. So even uh, William Kiffin, who's one of the key writers of our confession, um, he'd been remarried at one point. One of his marriages was in a Church of England by a, a parish minister, and another time it was in um, an independent congregation at one point. Um, even his children, if you look at the records of his children, some of his children were married in independent congregations. Others were married by the state. Others were married in um, parishes of the Church of England. So there's liberty there. And I think um, we should ultimately fall on, with Christian liberty, also submitting to our, our local authorities, so long as it does not harm our own consciences. But that also opens up a can of worms. This allows for divorce to fall on the calling of the civil magistrate as well. It's not in the church um, to uphold what would constitute um, a divorce. And the Baptists and the Independents, despite this, they still held that the biblical grounds for divorce ultimately were adultery and desertion, and, and some of them, many or most of them, would actually include things like cruelty, specifically by the male party, but they would say cruelty would be included as, as kind of an off-range of desertion. Even the Church of England um, held that at the time. Uh, but that, that means that divorce ultimately falls on, on the civil magistrate to, um, to enact a divorce when uh, that was called for, not to leave it to ministers to um, always be called to counsel and, and prevent divorce or, um, or even enact divorce. I mean, that would be... Um, we already have our pastor married, has married many members here. Uh, he, he married me and my wife. Um, but imagine if, if my wife and I, for whatever reason had to go through a divorce, and that fell on our pastor. That'd be a very hard burden um, for the pastor, especially regarding believers. So this was left up to the civil magistrate, um, and I think for good reason. So with, with that can of worms opened up, are there any questions regarding marriage and divorce specifically at the time? Yeah, Richard. That's a great question. Um, I'll say I haven't studied the entire history of that, but um, I will say the Puritans at the time actually critiqued the Catholics on both of those issues. So seeing it as a sacrament on one hand, but also seeing it as a being celibate was somehow a holier calling. 
Um, in fact, many of their expressions here in the confession are complete refutations of the idea that celibacy was necessarily a higher calling, that marriage is instituted for all people. And that's a good thing. It's part of creation. It's natural. Um, on the other hand, when it comes to it being a sacrament, I'm not sure when that would have started. I would assume sometime during the, the Middle Ages. Um, obviously, there's a lot of good from the Middle Ages, but also many extremes that led to the Roman Catholic Church of the time. So I'll have to circle back another day with you on that, uh, maybe do more research. Uh, don't have an answer now, but I would assume somewhere in the late Middle Ages is when um, that became viewed as a sacrament. And maybe there might be even some connection to um, the granting of indulgences as well. I'm not sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if, if that's connected. Yeah, Josh. Yes, they they would say that it is it is lawful and acceptable for a judge. In fact, they would say that it's primarily. I mean, even a judge still has to sign. I believe judges still have to sign off on on any marriage today, um, whether or not it's officiated by a minister. Um, but they they agreed. They they believe that. Uh, it was down to, it was a legal matter for the civil magistrate. So judges, that was a totally lawful, um, not just lawful, that's the acceptable way for marriage to be um, declared um, as a contract or as a, as a covenant. Um, and because of that, it's only because of that that divorce then is also a civil matter, a legal matter, and leaving that down to the legal system as well. Yeah, Dick? Is there any uh, Christian... I don't know. I mean, again, I, I know the Roman Catholic Church gives annulments. Um, I don't know of any de- Christian denominations, though, that give, that certify divorces. In fact, that, that probably isn't even legal um, in any Western nation. I, I would be surprised if, I, I doubt in America, a church, a minister's able to. I mean, I think that comes down to the civil magistrate, to the, the legal system, the courts. Um, but again, annulments, obviously, you, you would know, like the Roman Catholic Church, which you, you grew up in, um, they grant annulments, which is essentially saying this wasn't a marriage anyway. They, they showed by their actions, one party showed by the actions, this wasn't a true marriage, so they just declared it never was a marriage um, rather than giving a divorce. That's the closest, I think, uh, we get. I'm sure there, uh, there might be exceptions in history, especially... Especially, maybe not today, but in the post-Reformation era, um, many nations in Europe, for a time, were ruled by a mixture of church and state. Um, but I'd say since then, probably not. So yeah, we're talking about church state separation a lot, so here we have a case that the church can marry, but the church doesn't well, divorce, that's a state matter, so we have church-state separation. Well, yes, church-state separation, yes. Um, but in terms of marriage, Again, it, they, they would say that ultimately the, it's not the church that's marrying, the church is officiating, but it's still the, the courts that are granting a marriage to, not just divorce. Um, it would be really weird. I mean, it's, it's not weird for us to have a, a marriage ceremony in a church setting by a minister, officiated by a minister. It'd be really weird if we had that for divorce as well, if we had divorces officiated by ministers and, and a ceremony for that, because it's, it's the breaking off of a covenant. Um, but... So that's where Christian liberty is, is granted, that 
it can be officiated by a minister. It can take place in a congregation, in a parish, but um, it's still, a, a marriage is granted by the state as well. They believe that. Yeah, Melanie. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. So that's kind of interesting to me to think that um, it's civil. Yeah. The, the civil magistrate gives the divorce, I mean, gives the marriage, and the civil magistrate gives the divorce. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. I wonder how tied that is to the history of the Dutch, the Dutch Reformed Church and, and its ties with, with the state a century ago. Um, that'd be interesting to look into. So. Yeah, Sam. I'm just so I'm thinking about like marriage and I guess like the significance of marriage as like an analogy of Christ's relationship to the church. Yep. How does this confession kind of like reconcile that with this idea that marriage is primarily like a civil institution? Because I'm reading a book right now where mm-hmm. the author is kind of talking about like a philosophy of marriage and yep. kind of says, well practically marriage exists for two reasons and that is preservation of like financial means and like uh, material and also mm-hmm. preservation of like children's safety okay. and like following that logic he kind of like leads towards a defense of like polyandry and polygyny and like yeah. fine marriages and planned marriages and all these weird things yeah and it's a sci-fi book so it's kind of like okay i was wondering i was like where are we going <laughs> it's, it's probably it's probably if you're familiar with it no i'm not that's okay I'm glad to know it's science fiction, not like a Christian writer. So, yeah. um, but essentially, because marriage is a civil institution and primarily has kind of these practical, pragmatic like goals, it leads towards ideas like that. So how does this confession defend against that slippery slope? Yeah. And still say, yes, it's civil, but there's also this higher significance in like meaning. Yeah. So I think there's two questions you're getting at. One is, how does this creation, common grace institution, how do they bridge the gap between it being a, a legal, creational matter to it pointing to Christ and the church? And the other question you have that's kind of tied to that is, um, how does, um, I lost my train of thought. Let me answer that one first. So they don't have an explicit statement where they bridge that gap. Um, even in the next, the next uh, chapter, which is of, of the church, um, I think that in itself, that they're following after defining what marriage is and going to the church, I think that in itself explains the theology of marriage, that it points um, to, uh, to Christ's marriage of the church. Um, I don't think they would have seen an issue with, um, with seeing this as a creational ordinance, a legal matter, and it's still pointing to Christ. They wouldn't have seen any tension there. Um, that may be more of an issue for us today because... I think this gets to your other questions. Your other questions more with how do how does having a, a natural law view of marriage prevent things like polyandry, polyamory of all types? Um, I think that's a, an issue for us today because of the, the lack, the loss of natural law language in our society. Um, I mean, in the last 100 years, with the rise of all kinds of post enlightenment thought, pretty much everyone has has separated what we can know about creation um, from our own personal experience. So um, 
That's, that's a whole, I'm not going to go into that. There are many books that cover that. Talk to Pastor Nathan more about that. But um, many people, like Carl Truman, um, he's, a, he's a Presbyterian writer, he will argue that today, in order to, to address the issues of, of all, the, all the LGBTQ issues and mar- like reshaping of marriage, whether it's some polyamorous relationship or marrying a dog or whatever, like all these crazy things, he, he believes the answer for Christians isn't to use scripture to, to just bang on the heads of unbelievers, this is what you need to believe, but to use natural law because scripture says they know the law of God in their hearts. It's written on their hearts. Um, it was part of the creation. And again, that's why they quote Genesis, uh, the creation of man and woman and, and the institution of marriage, to defend that idea, to say this is rooted in creation ultimately. We all can know this, whether we suppress that or not. Um, I'll leave it there and then point you to Pastor Nathan to answer the more complicated matters related to that. But, yeah. Yeah, Benaya and then Louie. So you're saying if, if someone got divorced following one of those rounds? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it would be. I mean, if, if someone had been divorced by one of those because of one of those things, they would be permitted to remarry. Um, they would say it's lawful before the eyes of God to remarry after that. Um, and if someone got remarried and, and faced one of those issues again, it would be lawful to divorce. It's never a good thing, and, and divorce is always the result of sin. But it doesn't mean both parties are, are sinning through divorce. But they would believe that, at least. Louis? Yeah, so since it's saying that marriage is a primarily civil institution, couldn't the civil institution one redefine it to deny other institutions such as the church? So you So Louis asking um, if the church is, is, is the one in charge of, of granting marriages and divorces, what's to stop the, ch- not the church, sorry, the state, what's to stop the state from, from redefining what marriage is? And that's a question especially pertinent to today. I would argue, I would, I would maybe change the wording there so you mentioned that um, the state is to determine what marriage is. I would say the state, and they would say the state is to recognize what marriage is. And the state, as an institution ordained by God, is is sinning and will answer to God for redefining what they, they are to uphold. And I would, again, point you to Chris's Sunday School series of the past few weeks. But yeah. what does that make marriage not really a civil or common institution? Wouldn't that be a religious one? Wouldn't the church then have to come in and correct something that, correct, or obviously marriage is, you know, Sure. It's still valid. They're 
Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I'm trying to get. There does seem to be a, yes, we, we, we try something yet, but for Christians, it does seem it is a tool around living in both kingdoms. Yep. And I think that's the question I'm asking. Doesn't the church then have the right of authority to come in and actually rebuke, correct the state in its administration of marriage or definition of I mean, to that point, absolutely. The church, when the state decides to redefine a, a creational institution, absolutely the church should rebuke the state for that, should openly um, admonish them to the right, the right view of marriage. But they should do so using what they can know from natural law, general revelation. Um, and that's what separates the Baptist independents from the Anglicans and the Presbyterians of the time, is that they were rooting it in in natural law, if we're going to argue with the state on this, we argue on the grounds of, of what they can know, regardless of their Christian. Um, and, um, yeah, that's the very short answer to your question. Um, it's a tricky issue, especially today. Um, but I would say Christians today, we, we ought to admonish um, our, our governmental leaders to the proper view of marriage. I mean, we live in a society that allows, I mean, marriage is just a free-for-all, ultimately. Um, but we shouldn't, I would argue, using scripture is, is fine and good at times. But ultimately, if we're going to convince them, convincing them is to use, again, all truth is God's truth. We're to, we're to use the truths that they can know that's written on their hearts um, in general revelation to make a convincing argument to the state to uphold that. So that short answer there. So, yeah. yeah Hans, did you have a question? Yeah, thank you. Kind of a kind of two-part question. The first okay. I've been processing about kind of the state being well, kind of where marriage is kind of officiated and happens. If, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, so, supposing somebody gets kind of divorced in a way that the church doesn't think is within kind of the parameters of biblical divorce, mm-hmm. the state doesn't really care. This today that would be a common occurrence. Yeah. And they get remarried, and obviously, you know, that's by the power of the state at some level. We would say that was a valid marriage at a legal level, and therefore we have to recognize that as a marriage, even though the church maybe thinks it wasn't in the right way. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. So essentially, things like no-fault divorce, um, which is very common in our land. I mean, if people want a divorce, they can just get one, um, whether they have the biblical grounds for that. There's there's a difference of opinions on that, and I would have to think about that more before I gave an answer. I lean more on the side of if the state declares it a divorce, I would recognize it as such. It doesn't mean both parties weren't sinning or, or that it was not a, the biblical grounds for it. I think especially in terms of, as Christians, if you're a member of a church, you have that kind of protective community to lead you in the right direction of whether or not you're pursuing a biblical divorce or not, um, especially the, the guidance of your, your own ministers. But there is a difference of opinions on that where some, some Christians are on one side of... Um, it doesn't matter. Others are on the side of you're still married even if you got a legal divorce. So. Yeah, I also kind of lean towards saying that we should recognize the state-sanctioned marriage even if we think it's wrong. Yeah. Um, I guess the reason I ask is probably because I'm thinking about kind of some earlier questions about what do we do with the state's kind of authority to legislate this yeah. topic. Uh, obviously, the, one of the hot buttons issues right now is uh, gay marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah. Um, obviously, a lot of Christians are kind of uncomfortable with that. Um, but I feel like 
I see what you're getting at. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Because if we're to just submit to what the state says, and if they declare marriage to be something different, homosexual marriage, we just submit. And I would say, actually, no. So that's that's a that's an interesting question. I have to think about that more. Um, obviously, on the second question, just because the state allows for um, uh, a man to marry a man doesn't mean we should recognize it as as true marriage. But on divorce, that's yeah, that's a tricky topic for sure. Um, I can't provide a, a full answer today, but yeah. Okay, okay. Tricky, tricky issue. Um, I mean, you, you mentioned the two kingdoms. David Van Drunen's written a lot on that. He might be someone to look into what he's written. I think you might want to talk to Jacob Hargett. You took a class with him recently. So um, there's a lot of questions. Let me try to finish up, and at the end we can go. We can answer more questions. It's already ten uh, ten. So um, I'm sure there are a lot of questions. So we can hopefully have a, a few minutes for discussion at the end. Um, paragraph. We're only at paragraph two of four. Uh, paragraph two, marriage was ordained for the mutual help of husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue, and the preventing of uncleanness. So these are the ends of marriage. We have three primary ends here, um, three purposes. The first is companionship, the second is procreation, and the third is preventing of sin. Now, if you notice in the second one, procreation, they also include kind of a, an extra thing. It says with a legitimate issue. What they're referring to there is legitimate children are to be uh, the, the true heirs of their own parents. Again, seeing marriage and procreation as part of that, there's a legal uh, sense to that in which children are the rightful inheritors of, of um, the property of their parents. Um, the order here is important. So companionship is the primary means or the primary end. Procreation follows and preventing of sin follows that. Um, but none of these should be withheld in marriage. Can of worms there, we don't have time to, to go into what all that means, but I think today especially, it's, this is a challenging topic, but the idea of procreation, um, they rooted this in man's creation, Genesis 1 and 2, um, that marriage was to lead to childbearing. We're not going to go into what all that means. Um, I will say that prior to the 1920s, um, pretty much all Christians of, of all traditions, including Baptist traditions, uh, they would see, with procreation being one of the purposes, the ends of marriage, they would see things like contraception as, as actually a sinful way of countering God's design. I'm not going to go into that, but I urge you to, to study the topic. It's a very important topic, especially with um, the, the society we live in, on what the role of procreation in marriage is. Um, so I'll just leave you with that. The main point of this paragraph, though, is to show that marriage is it's covenantal. It has covenantal ends that, that consummate that that covenant, that the vows made. It's not sacramental. It's not a means of grace, which is what the Catholics and Anglicans believed. Paragraph three. Um, Going to have to fly through these, these last two. It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent, yet it is the duty of Christians to marry in the Lord, and therefore, such as profess the true religion, should not marry with infidels or idolaters, nor should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with such 
as are wicked in their life or maintain damnable heresy. So here they're speaking of, of what constitutes a lawful Christian marriage. So two key words, well, a lawful marriage and then as well as a lawful Christian marriage. But two key words here, um, who, are with, who are able with judgment to give their consent. Those are those who can get married. What they mean by judgment here is relating to minimum age. Another can of worms we're not going to get into because that changes, that's changed throughout history. At the time, it was 14 for males and 12 for females. If you were under 21, you needed your parental approval. Um, obviously, today, most states is 18, some are 16. Um, we're not going to talk about that. I'm, I'm not going to talk about that. So uh, I'll leave it at that. Just say that's what it was at the time. Refer, refer you to your, uh, your own state's jurisdiction there. Uh, what they mean by consent, consent here, so they have to give their consent, uh, there's two aspects to this. One is relating to arranged marriages. Uh, men and women at the time, and, and especially wealthier families, um, they were arranged to be married and didn't, didn't require their consent to that marriage if they um, wanted to marry the other person or not. Um, but it also refers to those who are lacking the mental capacity to consent to marriage, um, whether it's um, from a disability or from someone who's in a coma. Um, sounds crazy, but there have been strange cases in history um, that's what consent means. It's, it's relating to consenting and assenting to that marriage. In other words, marriage is to be mutual. Uh, and though marriage is not religious itself, this paragraph lays forth ways that Christians have duties to marry one another. Uh, it speaks of not marrying infidels. That would refer to unbelievers, people of other faiths. Um, idolaters, so those who are part of heretical or erroneous Christian traditions. And as they say, Christians are to be equally yoked. I refer you to 2 Corinthians 6.14 on that. Paul speaks of what that means, um, but essentially marrying in the Lord. Um, all of this is to say Christians are to marry those who meet the standards of church membership. And in fact, at the first General Assembly of, um, well, not the first, but the, the General Assembly that when, when this confession was legalized and um, given out broadly in 1689, when the Baptists met, they, were, they kind of had a question and answer time to refine some of their beliefs, and they were asked, uh, what are the duties of Christians when they get married? And in a very short answer, they said, Christians are to marry those who observe the Apostles' rule, referring to the Apostles' Creed, and in the Lord's. So they are to marry believers who affirm classical Christian orthodoxy. It's that simple. And finally, paragraph four, marriage ought, to be within, ought not to be within the degrees of consanguinity or affinity forbidden in the word. Nor can such incestuous marriages ever be made lawful by any law of man or consent of parties, so as those persons may live together as man and wife. So these are some of the prohibitions regarding marriage. Two forms of incestuous relationship are prohibited. I had not heard of this word prior to reading the confession. Consanguinity, it's a word we don't use very much anymore. That's referring to marriages between blood relatives. Um, so the parents, grandparents, siblings, uh, grandparents, grandchildren, aunts, uncles, cousins. Then we have affinity. So not to marry within a certain degree of affinity. It's referring to our in-laws. These types of arrangements are, typo there, are not lawful. We can know incest is wrong through natural law and general revelation, but they did say according to Scripture as well. So they're seeing that Scripture does have explicit teachings that we ought to uphold as well. Um, whether or not the state um, upholds that. In neither case do they give every degree of these situations. So 
When it comes to marrying your family, can you marry your third cousin, your fourth cousin? They don't go into detail. Um, and same with your in-laws. Can you marry someone who happens to be your in-law you didn't know about? Um, they actually give Leviticus 18, the entire chapter, as a proof text here. They say, such as forbidden in the word. And besides Scripture's explicit prohibitions, Christians are directed to use wisdom and prudence. And I would say not just Christians, but unbelievers as well ought to use wisdom and prudence. They can see the, the detrimental effects that incestuous relationships have. That um, is evident in general revelation. And looking ahead again, we'll be um, in chapter 26 next. Uh, we have, don't really have the time to delve into how all of this might tie into that. Um, I know it'll, we'll kind of look back a little bit. But we have a, maybe five minutes for questions. Um, and then, if not, not any more time, we can speak more afterward. Karen. I was saying in regards to what Lydia Thompson was saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I think the, the tricky part of that is how do Christians defend against that? Do we tell them what Scripture says, or do we do we try to convince them with what they can know from creation? That's also where it gets tricky because many Christians fall on either side of the issue. Can we use natural law reasoning with them, or do we need to show them what Scripture says and convict them that way? I'll get to Mark in just a second. Chris. Yeah, I mean, it's really about that question of authority. You know, does the state have authority to yeah. define marriage other than a man or a woman? And I would say no. They have authority over marriage as long as they defend it according, or define it according to God's law. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. They don't have the authority to usurp God's law. They have the authority to uphold it and bear the sword to protect it. Yeah. So we can use both scripture and natural law in our discussion. Yeah. Mark, and then Charity. Yeah. Yeah. So many aspects. It was such a natural uh, finding that the people of God have had an influence, a great influence upon even their government and their beliefs. Now the church is so weak. And yeah. The, and we look, many people look at the government as their, as their church lies around. And so the, the, the true church has become, we should be thinking our lives and what we're saying and what we believe and how we raise our families should have a godly influence to all of those around us. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I remember Charity brought up one of the previous Sunday schools that on one of the podcasts relating to this issue that she'd listened to, um, the, the person being interviewed gave the advice of get to know your local leaders um, so that they have Christian influences to point them in um, the direction that they ought to go, that they ought to lead us. And um, it's sad that there is such a separation that we just kind of sit back and let it happen. At least, maybe not us, but in history, Christians have kind of done that over time compared to the time, yeah, the confessions were written. Yeah, yeah Charity, do you have a question? that point that's where we have the calling as Christians to evangelize to share the gospel to people who are clearly lost at Jacob yeah 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 we were talking about that this morning with some guys yeah Yep. Yeah, we talked about that. Yeah, which is crazy. I mean, there's, there's definitely Christians behind the scenes because probably a Reformed Christian at that, nobody's going to quote Van Maastricht unless they're a Reformed scholastic. I mean, so not sure who they're, who they're talking with, but that was clear Christian influence. I mean, a non-Christian is not going to quote Calvin, Aquinas, and Van Maastricht. So uh, if you have any more questions after this, we can talk more. Uh, just find me. But uh, we'll leave on that encouraging note that uh, we can have an influence on our leaders um, and, and hopefully kind of guide our society back to a proper understanding of marriage. Uh, but with that, let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for uh, this fruitful time of discussion regarding uh, the institution of marriage and how you've created us, man and woman. Um, and in many cases, you've called us to marriage. Lord, we pray that you would help us to um, to to seek what what you call us to in marriage or, or in, in singleness um, in this life, but help us to see uh, what you've designed marriage for. Lord, we pray that you would uh, you lead our, our governmental leaders to repentance and to a return uh, to recognize what you have instituted as, as biblical marriage. Father, we pray now that you'd prepare, prepare this congregation to worship you, pray that you would be present among us, And Lord, that your name would be glorified. Pray all this in Christ, Christ's name. Amen.